Everyone has an opinion on lawyers, and this week's guest is unlike any lawyer I've ever met. Danny explains how the brainwashing she experienced at top-tier firms led her to create her own practice with a truly unique approach. Whether it's intentional or not, there's significant brainwashing that occurs where you genuinely feel that if I didn't work in the top tier, I would destroy my career and I'd never be taken credibly by anyone in the industry again. And if you've ever worked in professional services, Danny's revenue share billing model will blow you. We have a three-hour daily recoverable and that is your annual target. You get one-third of your annual target as your wage, including super. She lives by the mantra of owning your weird and being who you are at work. I think everybody's a bit weird in a different way. So it's all about working out what the other person's weird is and whether it aligns with your weird. Danny also speaks very openly about her adult ADHD diagnosis and the superpowers and challenges that brings her. I can think in layers, which means I can see all of the connections between things so that if I start one thing over here, I know exactly how it's going to impact on another thing down here and I can see it all at once. Keep listening if you've ever felt a little bit out of place at work. Welcome to The Thought Follower. I'm Joe Mackay. I've always had a lot of questions about life and this show is my quest to find some answers. Each week, I chat to a thought leader to hear what's going on in their space. Let's jump into the next episode. My next guest on the Thought Follower is a founder and managing partner of DKL Employment Law. She has been recognised this year as a finalist as Managing Partner of the Year by the Australasian Law Awards. Danny King, welcome to the show. Thank you. For the uninitiated like myself, how would you describe the role of managing partner at a law firm? What do you do in a few sentences? Try and keep the doors open. So (laughs) (laughs) you're looking for all of the key business drivers that any other business does. You've got to have opportunities coming in to do work, the resources to do the work, and make sure that all of the other functionalities are being done properly. So the bigger the firm, the more delegation power you have. Really, it's just like a CEO in a normal company, but in a law firm. So you you started the business in 2011. I think you've worked in the space for quite a long time. What would you say is the biggest change you've seen in that space in the last, say, five to ten years? There has been a very significant increase in micro firms, people hanging out a shingle, which I think is really cool. The barriers to starting your own firm are very limited. It's easy to do. And as more and more people are getting fed up of the traditional structures that we were all raised in, people are becoming more adventurous with how they control what they do next. I think in the employment context, the role of employment has been evolving and the expectations that people have, which is both post-COVID and generational, we're seeing that the power dynamic in that relationship is really shifting. Now it's flat or, if anything, bottom up. So there's a lot of refocusing on the role of what it is that the employer does and what the employee does to maintain a healthy relationship. And you can't just expect people to work all day, all night, all weekend and Mm. cop it on the chin and do it all from an office. So, yeah, I think the evolution has been gaining momentum in this time. What have you seen in this generation that is shifting that change? Where do you think that's coming from? 
what I'm finding is that the younger generation in our firm and in others and in the businesses of our clients expect a different relationship with their employer than the generations that came before. And in recognising that, there's got to be a shift in how the employer interacts with this category of employee because otherwise there is going to be no one to work in your firm or your business. You have to meet the labour market where it is. They do not have to change to meet you. And I think a lot of that comes down to the way in which they were raised, which is different to the way in which we were raised, and the people that came before us. So if I reflect on when I first started in a law firm, the people that I was reporting to, the partners then, they were raised in a completely different generation from me as well. And so my expectations of what was going to happen was very different to theirs. And it's kind of jarring to realize that now I'm in that category because <laughs> mm. in my head I'm still really like young and fun <laughs> you know looking at the young and fun people thinking ah okay I'm not like cool auntie Danny that can get I say say this and it freaks them out get down with the 411 and jiggy with it which my mum used to say when she was trying to be cool with me tongue-in-cheek <laughs> so now it's like extremely dated mm. you got to listen and react in a way that the individual needs you to react. So it's yeah. it's a lot more individual focused as opposed to before where it was a bit more blanket. It used to be top down. You would mm. join as a junior person in a business, whatever field, and you followed the leaders. But now you're saying it is more bottom up. You're feeling now you need to mould the environment based on what the bottom is asking for. I think it's really interesting shift do you see that trend continuing or what do you see in the next five to ten years? To build that out a little bit more, it is not just the younger generation that needs this. I need this too. I was one of those people in the top tier that tried to match the expectation of what was there and I am just no good at playing politics because I don't care who your family is. My dad's a builder and he's awesome. I don't have a depth of connection in this industry. I just have some chutzpah. Yeah. I like what I do. When I started this company, it was because I didn't fit well in that traditional structure and I know that I was weird at the time and still now. I think everybody's a bit weird in a different way. So it's all about working out what the other person's weird is and whether it aligns with your weird and it's how I want to work and it's how my business partners want to work because we're attracted to this concept of having a great job that supports a great life, that life being rich and full and extending way beyond the walls of work. We have established things that worked for us in our existing levels of weird and now we have to work out what the new levels of weird are so that we can stretch a bit here and contract a bit there and make it sustainable. How would you describe your weird? I was diagnosed with ADHD a couple of years ago. For me, it was so awesome to understand for the first time that there is a reason for my weird and the accepting of it, just running with it, so that now I've got an EA, an assistant to my EA and a PA, who helped me keep all of the things functioning in my universe 
so that I don't have to be pushing shit uphill doing things that I find very, very hard that non-weird people in this particular category find really easy, like Mm. grocery shopping. I can spend four hours in a grocery shop adventure comfortably because (laughs) every single aisle is full of all of these really interesting things and I think about Mm. all of the potential of the food I could cook and I spend 700 bucks on groceries and I get it home and then I get bored and I don't want to put it away. And then during the week, I'll still order Uber Eats because I can't be bothered to cook. It's not sustainable living. It's ridiculous. Mm. So, But there's no reason that it needs to be me that does that. And being able to accept that I don't have to be great at everything and I can get help on all of the things that I'm not great at lets me be incredibly focused on the things that I am really great at. And I'm bloody good at my job. Mm. What do you think about your makeup you know, enables you to be good at your job. Is there any superpower to that as well? A lot of people say that there's a superpower with ADHD. I think that undermines the fact that it is a true disability. For instance, I'm coming to you from Queensland at my bestie's house because it's my week with the kids and I had no idea it was school holidays and thought, oh, no, I've got nothing planned. I'll quickly book a flight. And we'll go up to the Gold Coast and you can be bored at Denise's house as opposed to bored at my house. And there's an inability to close the loop on things that I start, which is why I have so many people that help me finish things. But on the positive side, I'm very, very creative. And the innovations that have come to the way I practice law and I teach other people to practice law in how I run companies and I've got a couple that I run. There's research and development angle on the simple things in how I pay people, the value exchange that comes from work as a part of life. No one is doing what we're doing. It's because I'm irreverent. I don't care if it's not Mm -hmm. the right way according to the old ways of doing things. As long as it's not illegal, I I can think in layers, which means I can see all of the connections between things so that if I start one thing over here, I know exactly how it's going to impact on another thing down here and I can see it all at once. Mm. And I didn't know that other people couldn't do that until very recently. I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) The burning question I have from what you just said is, how did you get through a law degree and work your way through the system? When I think lawyer, I think detail, I think agonizing over hundred page documents and sounds like that would have been very hard for you. How did you get through it? I didn't find it hard to be honest, because I love it. I'm interested in it. Something that the literature says about ADHD is you can hyper-focus on things that are really interesting. And Mm. for me, loving what I do, started way back even at school. I loved certain subjects at school and so I smashed. I had a really great UAI because I was strategic in what I picked. And then when I was at uni, I chose the subjects that I really liked and I was just really interested in the whole process. The disinterest comes in, the dotting the I's and the crossing the T's becomes really hard. But if you're interested in it, it's fine. I can digest thousands of pages of material in things that really interest me. See all the layers, connect all the dots, prepare a strategy and go, here, go do this. But doing the work that comes out of it Mm. is like nails down a chalkboard, which is why in our firm, most of the work that I do is speaking and strategic Mm. setting. I've got people to come in and fill in the gaps, which is a lot more efficient. And it means that we can consider the big picture 
and know that the detail is going to be done by people that conversely love the detail. Yeah, that was where I was going because my experience of being a junior, for me it was a management consultant, but when you are the junior, you're responsible for the detail, for all that doing. So I guess how did you break through that phase of your career as a lawyer? I mean, you could talk to people from back then and maybe some of them would tell you I didn't do very well. I didn't, um, I had a couple of rotations in the firm I started off in and for the one I loved, I got through it brilliantly. For the one I didn't like at all, I was terrible because I couldn't push through and I ended up running away because I just couldn't see a way through pre-diagnosis that I could see success with because I, I had no idea that I needed to be really interested to be good. Yeah. Hey, it's Joe here. I hope you're enjoying the episode. Every chat in season one of The Thought Follower is very different. I've talked to creatives, economists, elite athletes, CEOs, venture capitalists, and a bunch more along the way. You never quite know what you're going to get, so make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you get your podcasts and make sure you don't miss an episode. Let's get back to the chat. So you mentioned you considered quitting. What brought you back? Therapy. I had a great therapist Mm. who helped me to see that it's okay not to work in the top tier it's okay whether it's intentional or not there's significant brainwashing that occurs where you genuinely feel or I genuinely felt that if I didn't work in the top tier I would destroy my career and I'd never be taken credibly by anyone in the industry again that blinkered perspective is so unhealthy well it was for me and so the therapy helped me to work through that Mm. and then I found this great firm Optum Legal very small it was the first new law firm so they were really innovative they had a completely different approach I went and joined them and I was just so interested and excited because I was Mm. building a practice from scratch I was like 25 something ridiculous um running the employment law practice and at the time I hadn't even cracked the Fair Work Act because the legislation had changed since the last time I'd done it. And I thought, oh, yeah, just give it a crack. How hard can it be? That practice had so much depth and breadth in Mm. the support that we got as humans because there was a business development guru, Christian Highland, that spent heaps of time helping me understand what it means to develop a business and how to talk to people with an open mindset to making a sale but not being a sales kind of annoying person. Mm. And I had one concerted push of coffees, however long ago that was, and that was the most focused BD drive I ever did and I'm still getting the benefits from it. I just turned 40 and I was 25, so that's a long time ago. I didn't do maths in high school, so I can't tell you how long that was, (laughs) how many years, but, you know, it's that long. And in doing that, it showed how possible everything was so that when that firm unfortunately closed, the three lawyers that were left just started firms the next day and we're all still very good friends. One is now a registrar in the federal court and it's just you learn and grow and roll with the punches and then all of a sudden, 2023, if you zoom out and kind of take a snapshot, it's like, shit, that's a success. Talk to me more about the, you referred to it as brainwashing. It's something I've definitely experienced going to a private school, for example. The whole education model there is around how close to the top can you get. Very limited focus on what kind of a person are you. It is all about how high can you go. I've realised now is fundamentally flawed by definition. There are only so many spots at the top. So 
Could you just unpack a little bit more your kind of experience with that and brainwashing? Elaborate on that. I think this is the big driving question for why we put so much effort in our business now to doing things differently because it's not just the big firms that do this. This is a cultural underpinning of shared understanding of what success looks like and it's a list that some cosmic being keeps of who is the most successful. There are job titles, salaries, recognition. They're the kind of things that are culturally this inalienable mark of success, but they're not meaningful. You're not judged by your ability to roll with the punches or be a good person, lift others up, create space for those who don't have the voice yet and help them work on the voice and then step back and celebrate that they have the voice. There's so much more to being a good human and a good member of our community and society than those three little arbitrary characteristics that, frankly, you can only get to if you come from an existing position of privilege. I also went to private schools and I recognize I have my parents to thank for investing. You know, it was very hard for them to pay my school fees. And I think I did get a great education and great connections. I'm really grateful for all of that. Mm. It definitely helped me get into law. It has followed me through all of these things, but it's not the only way and it's not the important measure of me like I would never want someone to think of me as more worthy because of my privilege it's frankly embarrassing it's something that I think about now that I've got kids what kind of education self-identity injection of privilege do I want them to carry which is a very complicated thing in my head Mm. so we've got the privilege that you have to get in there and then you start at the bottom and you're Your privilege will have helped you get into that role at the bottom and then you've got to work your way up to the top. Now that I'm a very cynical lawyer who has assisted many partners in top-tier firms to navigate the trials and tribulations of what it means to be in that setting, it is not just work your ass off, become partner, happy days. It's work your ass off, become partner, work your ass off harder because the expectations increase and there's a hell of a lot between entry-level partner and the top partner that gets paid a lot of money and it is hard to throat. In that context, it's hard. So you have to have the additional layer of privilege of a stay-at-home wife who runs your entire existence Mm. and allows you to be 100% work. And not everybody has that. And when you do have some responsibility for another human being like a child or you're a carer or you're in a relationship that's a little bit more balanced then you are not going to succeed in that model so that means not only have we got this cultural kind of expectation that if you have these three things you're going to be winning at life but the only people that have it all look the same that's alarming i will note that there have been a number of leadership appointments in top tier firms recently to women, which I think is really encouraging. Mm. And I do think that there is recognition to some degree that this kind of a cultural driver of success is not a good one. I don't think everybody's the worst ever, but it continues to be what success looks like 
And if you yeah. zoom success there down to hiring juniors, if what success looks like is a white man and you've got a white male candidate and a candidate that's someone else, there's this inherent anchoring to, oh, you're going to be successful and I've got a real problem with that. This is something I've really grappled with, like as that privileged mm. cisgender white male. And I've been very fortunate to have good jobs. Generally, if I want to try and do something, I can go and achieve it because that privilege is that guiding hand through all of it, I guess. You know, it's something I'm very cognizant of. But what do I do about that? The hard thing is how can I help almost? I hear you because, you know, I'm not a man, but I'm still white. I'm like so white. I have friends who are not white and I'm like the whitest of white. I have the privilege that I have. I don't carry shame about that anymore. I used to, but because I see it and I clock it and I deliberately set out to make space for people in all contexts that don't have the same privilege, like in our workplace, there's no dominant voice. There is a platform for which everybody has a voice. We are absolutely ruthless with cutting out people that are dominating and controlling the communications, particularly when there's a layer of privilege there that other people don't have. The other things that we do, we call it out when we see it and we name it when we see it. I'm involved in some really hefty pro bono work that I'm so proud of. My part in that is my brain, my time, and my heart. And there's a lot that happens. Just last week, we had two separate meetings with many people in governments and we're, we're getting somewhere, we're getting traction and it's, it's happening. And I create the space in my life, even though it's really full, to be a part of that because I love the feeling that I get when I'm walking alongside others in a way that makes me feel connected regardless of things like all of the privilege that previously I had a lot of shame about. Whereas like if I'm hanging out with people on the slopes of Aspen and we're all talking about our insert something here, you know, I can ski, I get it, it's cool. Yeah. I'm not proud of that. It's just the everyday decisions about how you, you create the space for others and then what really gives you joy. I used to check in a lot with these, all of these different people like, shit, am I being racist? I don't mean to be. Please pull me up if I am. And it got to the point where they're like, Danny's like, no one thinks like that. You need yeah. to chill out. Mm. Like, stop it. I'm like, okay. And then I did. So you mentioned um, brainwashing and how flawed that traditional model of a law firm is. Yeah. How do you set yourselves up in a way that's different? We have a remuneration model that's quite different. It kicks in after you've been with us for about a year. We've got to make sure that it's safe for everybody to come on to because it can be quite stressful. We have a three-hour daily recoverable and that is your annual target. You get one-third of your annual target as your wage, including super. If you achieve more than your three hours, then you will get paid 10% of every dollar that you achieve in excess of your target. If you maintain for three months a full hour above, so if you have four hours, five hours, or like any other firm in the market, six, seven hours, 
then we pay a loading on top of your base that is one third of the additional revenue target that you are achieving consistently. So we are meaningfully sharing the value of what each individual creates in revenue for our business. And it's management's job to provide the opportunity to do the work, but also enhance the value of the employee in how they can present themselves to the market so we can increase their charge out rate because as soon as we go up, that's an automatic pay increase on their charge out rate. It's also intentionally three hours because I personally choose not to work more than three hours on billable work. I've got shit to do. I've got to run a company. I've got a publishing company. I've got all these other things that I'm doing. And whilst I love my job, I'm so excited about this software that we're building and all of these other things mm. that I'm happy to just cover the baseline. It's like a choose your own adventure model. For other people in the firm, they are at a different part in their journey and they are really keen on making as much money as possible right now. Mm. And so we try and support them to make that possible. In a context of abundance, there's work absolutely everywhere. It's just a matter of doing it in a way that is efficient and safe and always lifting others up. And this model is really vulnerable to people gaming the system. And so it is very, very carefully aligned to our strategic plan, which boils down to don't be a dickhead, but we've got you know, data flags that show, oh, well, this person, they've charged for all of their time on an invoice, but they've written off everybody else's time. So that comes up and we're like, are you being a dickhead? Let's have a look at it. And it puts the power in everybody at all levels to make sure that the scoping's been done right. Oh, this person's only said it's going to take me an hour. I think it's going to take me four. I'm going to push back on that. Instead of just going and doing the work for four hours and then being glum, about the fact that you're only going to get paid for one of them. That realignment piece, the four pillars that we have that are deliberately in order, love our people, work for the right clients, doing the right work, work smarter, not harder, and then love our clients. Love your people has to be first at all times. And that is why I think we're different because I will happily terminate clients. We do it really frequently, to be honest, because they're either not the right client for us or it's not the right work for us. We don't have to bite off more than we can chew. We don't have to have sleepless nights and work weekends. We can also not be treated badly by clients that decide that they want to have a relationship that's a little bit more dynamic than we do because we can choose and we choose happy and safe and productive. And if that comes at the cost of revenue, it doesn't really matter because it's all about the pillars in order. It's still an experiment. We've got to wait and see whether it's sustainable over the mm. long term. We've always had a three-unit, three-hour expectation, and now we've built some really cool software that sits over our practice management system, so everybody can see how they're going. There are mm-hmm. tips on ways to increase the recovery. It could be that there's unrecovered invoices. What can you do to help shuffle that along? Why didn't we have money and trust in the first place? Maybe next time you'll be more careful to make sure money's in trust. Even if you're not the decision maker, you are definitely a stakeholder. And so you make your voice known and everybody's voice is real and heard 
and needed. And that, I think, is pretty different. Yeah, sounds really different. What I love about it is the people are at the centre. That model is vulnerable if you don't have the right people, but it, I imagine it, it works really well when you do have exactly the right people. It's certainly something I've seen, and you touched on it earlier, more people going out on their own, starting their own thing, but I think kind of wrapped up in that and following on from that is more people standing for what they stand for, what they believe in, and if you don't fit into that, go to the next place, whether you're a customer or an employee. I think it's really powerful because something that I've often struggled with is it costs a lot more energy to be someone that you're not, particularly at work, and trying to put that face on and be that person and fit into the culture or whatever it is. And as I go on, not having the appetite to do that and trying to find, I guess, my weird and, and who else is weird in the same way in a complementary way that, that I can go and work with. So I love the idea of that model. I love that you love it. <laughs> I don't have a law degree, but otherwise I'd be uh, I'd be pulling a seat right. together, I'd say. Yeah, um, come on over. We'll include management consulting. I'm sure we can work out a way. <laughs> Hey, it's me again. If you've made it this far, I'm guessing you're enjoying the chat. Don't forget to give the thought follower a rating and share it with your friends. Otherwise, reach out to me on LinkedIn with any guest suggestions or feedback on the show. I'd love to hear from you. Let's get back to the episode. An issue that's in the media at the moment is, I think it's particularly centering on some of the big banks, but large organizations and how they're handling this work from home. It feels to me at the moment in some cases that we've got an employer on one side of a table, a group of employees on the other side of a table saying, you know, we want to stay at home and the employer saying, we want you to come to the office. How do you see this playing out? I think you can't squash a genie back into the bottle. We have now seen that it is possible and feasible to work from anywhere with the internet. I'm working from the Gold Coast right now, but I live in Sydney. I'm very grateful to the two little boys downstairs that are keeping it down. You can do more with your lived experience. You can't get that same level of depth in always having to go to an office in a fixed location. So stopping that more expansive view on the lived experience of individuals, I think people are doing to their peril. I think having a mandated five-day return and work in the office is not going to hold up to the protections that are now in our legislation where individuals can bring an application for flexible work. And you can't just say, nah, you've got to explain why. And now there's a mechanism to even get a review of your decision in the Fair Work Commission. So instead of being forced to do it through the court process, it is a much better way to meaningfully consult with the people that are impacted and try and find a path forward that genuinely works for everybody. And if it can't be everybody, then for most, and then you deal with the squeaky wheels on a one-on-one -on -one basis yep. because it's okay to change but without the catalyst of there being a pandemic stay-at-home order, that change is so scary. But with that catalyst, that change is not important because we're just trying to keep the wheels turning and work still happens anyway. Mm. So I think moving forward, it will become a matter of how employers compete with their employer brand for good talent. Employers must be feeling that. I think access to the job market feels better than ever 
people are much more conscious of their own value. There's also now that, as you said, people putting out their own shingle and, and just, I'm never even going to apply in the first place. It's a really interesting power dynamic that's shifting. Do you see an end point for it? Like if we fast forward, is there a steady state to this or? The only thing that is a steady state is a lack of steadiness because we're human beings. We want what we want. The union movement has lost some members and lost some traction. The people movement hasn't. Mm. And it might be that instead of it being collective, it's just a massive individual applications. But either way, you still have to deal with it. Do you want to keep on deflecting all of these requests or do you want to just deal with the problem head on and work out something that works? How much of what you do is going to a client saying, here's what the law says you can and can't do, ABC versus business strategy? A lot. My team does a lot of their employer stuff. I do select employer, but mostly employee and very senior employees who are facing some challenges and helping them either make decisions as a part of their role. And I'm in the background and no one knows I'm there. And it's CEOs, CFOs. Here is a challenge. We've got these statistics here, this cost there. And I just need someone that I can sit down and workshop the different solutions with, taking into account the political drivers of this person really wants this outcome, but that's because they're going to get a kickback or whatever it is. But someone who gets it because in looking at who else they've got to talk to, it's either the competition or it's a spouse or a very good friend. And unless they know all of what they need to know, like it's really hard to get all of these skills together. So it's, I, I call it corporate survivor. I love that. And it's just walking alongside someone to help them through whatever challenge they're facing. And it doesn't always lead to a definite outcome. Sometimes it can lead to a negotiated separation. A lot of time it will lead to continued success in a role with more confidence. In the beginning of the engagement with anybody, we have a, an initial consultation method where we ask about all of the context. What's your financial context? Can you afford to fund big or little? How do we have to tailor our approach to meet that? How's your mental health? Can we provide support? Do we need to be aware of triggers? Do we need to moderate how we interact with you to support that? What are the motivations of the people that we're dealing with? Let's look under the hood of the psyche of the person who's causing the most grief and think about what motivates them most. And with all of these little data points, we can then pull together a strategy that applies whatever law is there. The law's the easy bit. Anyone can crack open a textbook and go, this is an unfair dismissal or this is a general protections class. It's what you do with it that counts. And you can just cause huge trauma in someone's life by failing to take into account any of those things and going straight to litigation or sending a huge letter of demand and then filing proceedings when it could have been done with a phone call to the right person using the right language. So it's working that out. That is most of our work, I think. Really interesting. So maybe just to change tack a little bit, do you see yourself as a thought leader? don't know. I see myself as a top little Sheila <laughs> who's having a crack and having a good time and is making shit work. And I would love to think that I can be helpful. Like that's the thing that motivates me the most, helping. And now most people know it. They'll be like, it'd be really helpful if you did this thing that you normally hate. And I'm like, oh, helping. And then I can focus on it. So like the thought that I can be helpful in helping anybody 
who is in business or a legal situation or whatever. That's exciting. But thought leadership is not something I've really thought about paradoxically. So managing partner at a law firm essentially is CEO in that space. Mm. What's your number one KPI for yourself? What do you measure yourself on? It's a bloody good question. (laughs) Maybe there's a few KPIs in there. (laughs) I think it is the tone of the workplace. Does it feel good or does it feel icky? As you walk around the office, when do your hackles rise? What do you need to deal with? Why haven't you dealt with it yet? Without that, nothing else works. I studied commerce and, and all the thinking around KPIs, smart goals. That, what you just outlined, is the polar opposite to that, but makes perfect sense in an organisation of the kind of scale you've got. That's a people-led organisation that's all about your values and your culture. I mean, that is the only way you can get close to measuring anything. I am someone who operates a lot on gut feel as well. I would love to put a number on everything and measure everything, but the more I work, the more I realise how many shades of grey there are and how often gut feeling plays out. I feel like there's a whole ream of bachelor's degrees and so on to be mapped out around what's the opposite approach to what gets measured, gets managed. Look, I'm happy to hear you say that because that will greatly support my R&D tax exemption application for the business model. Um, It's hard. I don't think it's been tested in this way before. But also we do have measurements that are part of our system. Like we've got quite a a good structured system for doing the work. We've got that dashboard. Everybody can see how they're tracking. We've got the checks and balances in there. It's turnkey. I love Michael Gerber. You know, the e-myth is daggy old but the best. And if you can make it all do that and fix the squeaky bits, it's looking after itself. So you just need the inputs to come in to participate in that system, to want to be there and do it. What it sounds like to me what you're doing is you're layering extra piece on top, which is if all my numbers are green, we're making money or whatever those measures are, but I walk around the office and it doesn't feel right, something is wrong. There's that fundamental measurement piece, but you've got that layer on top that needs to still feel a certain way for you. What do you think about that? Yeah, and it's not just about my senses. It's about what people come to me and tell me about. Mm, mm. You know, we've got such an open door policy. We encourage it. And if someone else has got that kind of icky feeling, then that's something that we need to look at. Why are you feeling ick and caring about it instead of just saying, suck it up? You've talked through what some of the challenges of being diagnosed with ADHD has meant for you and the support network you've now put around yourself to help get through that. Is there anything else that you do as an individual to be able to get yourself right and put yourself in a situation where you can show up as that CEO? Medication, and I can't tell you how great that is. And if I'm feeling like I'm not ready to step into a room, which is very rare, I mean, I'm two years into approving a point that I can wear fish shoes in every context, including black tie dinners, meetings with ministers in Parliament House, you name it. So I'm very, very irreverent. My weird is extreme. So I'm not genuine or generally feeling like I can't walk into anything and and not be that. But when I am, I have my partners, Kevin and Sonia. I talk with them. I've got my team and I sit down and I just say, this is what I'm feeling. I'd love to work through it so that I'm not feeling like this when I go into that bit. What I love about how you've set it up is you you own who you are. 
you know, I think that's very inspirational. You know, it's something I'm, I'm working towards being, being better at that, you know, just taking ownership of the weirdness. I'll send you some fish shoes because I think they're the answer. <laughs> okay. You've built your business around that, built an environment that allows you to own who you are and just recognise, you know, I think um, that is a big inspiration for me. Danny, I really enjoyed the chat. I, I learned so much from today. I feel like I've got more questions than ever before in some, in some areas. Um, so thank you so and much And you were sharing. concerned that we weren't prepared enough and here we are. Let's turn up and give it a crack and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for sharing so openly and honestly about what's going with you and what you're up to. I really enjoyed the chat and hopefully we'll stay in touch. Thanks, Joe. It was an absolute delight. Thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to support me or the show, best way is to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And please get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear from you with any guest recommendations or feedback on the show. See you on the next one.